If you all would please uh, stand with me as we read uh, from the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and uh, just grateful to be able to gather with you on this beautiful Sunday morning that we're having together. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, jump into his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and just want to praise your holy name. God, we're grateful for the freedom we have to gather here in this particular place to worship you, to open up your word this morning, to sing songs of praise to you and about you. Lord, many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now do not have that opportunity, do not have that freedom. They're persecuted for doing those things. So we pray that you'd strengthen them this morning, wherever they happen to be right now, that you'd strengthen them in the grace of Christ, that they'd be encouraged and joyful and have an increase of faith. But Lord, I pray now as we open up your word that you would help us to focus, that you would help your word just to resonate within our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that you bless this time. May your word revive us. May it make us wise. May it enlighten our eyes. May it penetrate our hearts. God, would you change our lives because we are sitting under the preaching of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me. I pray that you would fill us. I pray that you would be glorified and the name of Christ would be exalted today. So we praise you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, this, uh, Austin, can you uh, change the gain a little bit on that? Thanks, man. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel like this year is already going by pretty quickly. It's crazy to me that it's already the end of April, though it hasn't felt much like April uh, so far. But it's been, a, it's been a pretty quick year, it seems like, so far. And, and we're coming up on kind of the summer months here. I know for college students, you guys are almost done with this semester. Get some hallelujah amens, I'm sure, from that. Uh, elementary, middle school, high school students, I know you're coming up on the end of the school year as well in just a couple of months. And the month of June, for me, uh, personally has two dates that will pass. In the month of June, Amy and I will have been married for 15 years. Yeah. So looking forward to celebrating that. In the month of uh, June, did I say January? In the month of June, 15 years. In the month of June, also, I will have been out of high school for 19 years. Now, just to save you the time to do the math on that. Uh, I'll be 37 next week, and I got married when I was 22, so trying to figure all that out. You know, something uh, interesting about American graduations, though, whether it's from high school or college or whatever it happens to be, is that the ceremonies often are referred to as commencement ceremonies, commencement ceremonies, and the speech that's given during those ceremonies is often called a commencement speech. 
Now, that's not necessarily the case in other parts of the world where those ceremonies are often just called graduation. The word commencement, though, means a beginning or a start. So in the context of graduation or high school, what's really being focused on isn't the end of something. It isn't the conclusion of something. It's the start of something new. So the month of June for me is a month of commencement. I became a college student 19 years ago. I became a husband 15 years ago. The start of two journeys. Well, last week as a church, we jumped into a new sermon series. And we'll be in this sermon series kind of in and out of it over the next year or so. And we're calling this sermon series Our Confident Hopes. You know, something that we put in our membership covenant that the pastor elders of Sojourn Church covenant with you as members of Sojourn is that we covenant to seek God's will for our church community to the best of our ability as we study scripture and follow the spirit. And so something the elders and the pastors have been doing over the last few weeks, over the last few months, really over this whole last year, has been praying about and asking God to show us what he wants us to be about, what he wants us to focus on in the life of this church over the next three to five years. And that's caused us to ask three questions. Why do we even exist as a church? Why are we here? And then how are we going to continue to exist as a church? And then thirdly, out of that, what hopes do we have that would come from those two things? Now, why we exist as a church has been and will continue to be the same for us as we move forward. Sojourn Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who know the gospel, live out the implications of the gospel, and share the message of the gospel. Last Sunday, we jumped into our first five-week series here talking about what matters most when it comes to being disciples. Disciples are men and women who know and follow Jesus. Men and women who know and follow Jesus. And the reality is that you and I can't make disciples if we're not being disciples. Striving by God's grace and power to love God and love others more than we love ourselves. And so today we're going to jump into another short but critical text. Chelsea just read it for us, a command given by Jesus for us to heed in order for us to collectively together to be a faithful church, to do what God is calling us to. Now the text we looked at last week is often referred to as the great commandment, and the text that we're going to look at this week is often referred to as the great commission. Jesus gives this call to his disciples at the end of his time on earth. But like a commencement speech, Jesus isn't focused on something that's ending. This isn't about the end or conclusion of anything. It's the beginning of something new. So today, we're going to continue our journey together. Our journey to be a faithful church. The faithful church that Jesus has called us to be. We're going to continue this journey as Jesus instructed his first disciples to continue. Now, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, what's called the Great Commission, I'm assuming for a lot of us is familiar, but I don't want to assume too much because there may be some of us that have never heard this before, and that's okay. Whether you've heard this a hundred times or this is the first time ever hearing this text, my hope though for us, whether this is familiar or unfamiliar to you, is that God would use it to see the great joy, the great privilege, the great power that we have been given in Christ. 
My hope is both as individuals and as a church that we will see clearly what our purpose is in life. What our purpose is in life as we wait for Christ to return or take us home. So may God use our time in his word this morning. I pray that he'd use it to shake off complacency. If there's complacency in your life right now, I pray and hope that he will clarify any confusion that might exist in your life right now. If you're wondering, what am I supposed to be about? What am I supposed to be doing in my life? That God would bring clarity this morning for you. I hope that God will catalyze us to be and do all that he's called us to be and do together. So let's jump into Matthew 28 this morning. And may God bless the preaching of his word. As we come to our text today, you can see this is the last chapter in the book of Matthew. If you flip the page in your Bible or look to the next page, it's the book of Mark. And so we come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is where Matthew is recounting the life and ministry of Jesus. Immediately prior to this, in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus has been crucified on a cross as an unjust punishment. The cross was a Roman execution device for criminals. The problem is that Jesus wasn't a criminal. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. Nothing wrong before the Roman government. And nothing wrong to break the law of God. As we said last week, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. He lived a perfectly obedient life before God, doing everything that God had called any one of us to do. So Jesus, though, willingly went to the cross, not for his own punishment, not for his sin, but so that he could be a substitute for sinners, that he could stand in your place, be nailed to the cross for you, dying the death that all of us should die for our rebellion against a holy, righteous God, bearing the wrath of God that you and I should bear for our own sin. Jesus died and he was buried. But as we celebrated just a few weeks ago at the very beginning of April, Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose again from the grave. And earlier in Matthew chapter 28, we see this encounter where some women who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, have gone to the grave. But instead of finding Jesus there, they find an angel. And this angel declares something that's good news for them and for the whole world. He is not here, for he has risen. And a few short verses later, Jesus appears to the women and he says to them, go and tell the others to go ahead to Galilee, to the place that I will tell them to go. Specifically, he's speaking about the now 11 disciples. So we see in verse 16, it was read earlier, that these 11 disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had directed them to go. And verse 17 tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him, they praised him. Imagine them falling down on their knees, their hands lifted up, praising God that they're seeing their risen Savior right before their very eyes. But see, just a few days before this, their world has been flipped upside down. Jesus had told them that he had to die. And he told them that he would rise again from the grave. But it seems that they didn't really quite fully understand exactly what Jesus was talking about. It wasn't until he was actually crucified Things began to sink in a bit. But in the midst of their crucifixion, it seemed that their faith wasn't bolstered in that moment, but started to crumble and blow away. This wasn't how things were supposed to go. I thought Jesus was going to come and, and rule and reign as the king, yet now he's dead. But in that moment, on that mountain in Galilee, 
when they see their risen Christ, everything changed for them. See, Jesus' resurrection is verification that he is who he says he is and has done what he said he came to do. He's the son of the living God who's come to take away the sin of the world, which means that everything that Jesus said and did was real, and it all matters. But notice at the end of verse 17 what Matthew says. But some doubted. Now, some scholars presume that this is probably not referring to the 11 disciples, that there were probably some other people that were there that doubted the fact that Christ was standing before them, but I don't think that's the case. Because Matthew specifically points out that it's the 11 disciples who are there. See, I think what Matthew's doing here is he's he's being honest. He's being vulnerable. And he's just giving some real talk here. See, doubt here, the sense of the word doubt is hesitation. So, so why would they hesitate? Why would they be hesitant to worship? Why would they be hesitant to come before Christ, the risen Christ? Well, we have to remember the last time they saw Jesus, some of them, not most of them, the last time they saw him was when they fled and ran away from him in the garden. The last time they saw Jesus, they were running away from Jesus. And Jesus saw the back of them. So they may be wondering in this moment as they see Christ standing before them, how now will he receive me? I don't know about you, but for me, this just little honest comment is comforting. Because I know at times I struggle with faith. I struggle to believe. Even though I know the truth of the gospel, I know that I'm accepted by God through the sacrifice of Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on my ability It's not based on what I can offer to God. It's not based on my knowledge. But sometimes I still wonder, how will he receive me now? Based off what I said or did, or what I didn't say or didn't do. And so if you ever struggle with faith, if you ever struggle in this way, take heart, you're in good company. Because see what Jesus does. In this moment, Jesus comes to them glorified with scars in his hands and his feet and his side, the crucified, now risen Savior, and he doesn't come and rebuke. He doesn't come and correct. He doesn't come and chastise them. He speaks to them. In this moment, Jesus is reestablishing a relationship. Though they've left him, he will never leave them. So what does he say to them? What does he say to them? He makes a resounding declaration. Look at verse 18. He says, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because Jesus is the Son of God, because he's the risen Savior, he says, All authority has been given to me. All. Not some. This isn't localized authority. Like, all authority within Galilee has been given to me. No, this is all of all. Heaven and earth. Jesus is perfect in every way. And so the good news for us is is that means his authority is perfect in every way. And it's for our good. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, who now leads us to still waters and green pastures. He's not dictatorial in his authority. He's a servant leader with his authority. And he demonstrated that most specifically in taking on humanity, willingly laying down his life for his enemies so that we could be reconciled to God, that we could be co-heirs with him. 
Now, something that's striking to me is that if we go back to Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, we get the picture, we see the picture, the the story is told of, of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And in this instance, Jesus is out in the wilderness for a long period of time, and Satan seems to be coming to him over and over and over again, tempting him. And there are three specific temptations that are recorded, the last of which Satan comes to Jesus, and he says it show, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, I will give you all of these if, if you will just simply bow down and worship me. But Jesus doesn't do that. And Jesus walks in perfect obedience. He refuses Satan and he says, God alone is to be worshipped. Listen, Satan offered Jesus authority over the whole earth through a shortcut. Now, Jesus declares that he has all authority over heaven and earth and it came through sacrifice. In obedience to the will of God. What a savior we have. The sovereign king of the entirety of the eternal kingdom of God. It would do us well to listen to him. And what does he say? He says, because I am the once dead, now risen savior. and Because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, I am calling and commanding you to do something. See, Jesus isn't only reestablishing relationship. He's taking this raggedy group of believers who've struggled in faith, who don't have it all together, and he's calling them to go do something. He's calling them to walk by faith and faithfulness and advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And before we dive into this, let me be really clear. This is for us. This isn't an isolated command just given to these 11 disciples. It's, it is given to them, and we'll see that. But by implication of that, it's given to all of us, all faithful followers of King Jesus. So what does Jesus say? The overarching command in this text is to make disciples. And the components of disciple making are the rest of the words there. Go, baptize, teach. Make disciples. How we're doing that? Go, baptize, teach. And who are we to do that with? The nations. So let's talk about those things. The disciples, we said last week, as I said at the beginning today, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Men and women who are seeking to follow Jesus, learning from Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, whose lives have been transformed and changed by Jesus. But being a disciple of Jesus isn't about information transfer. And it isn't simply about changing how you identify yourself. Like once I wasn't a follower of Jesus, now I am a follower of Jesus. Like if you switched being a fan of the Mets and now you're a fan of the Nationals. I would suggest that's a wise decision to make. But that's not what this is about. This isn't about just switching how you identify yourself. This is a fundamental change in your identity, a fundamental change in your allegiance, a fundamental change in your life. Everything changes when you become a disciple. To be a disciple is about hearing the message of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. Hearing it with your ears, it has to be communicated to you, and then about placing your faith in Christ for your salvation. 
Being a disciple begins with believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, believing that God raised him from the dead, and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that's super important for us. See, Jesus didn't live and die and rise again so that you could get your ticket to heaven punched and then just go about living your life as if nothing's changed, waiting for a future time. Now listen, Jesus came to bring revolution to your life, to flip everything upside down by uniting you to himself, that your old self would actually be crucified with him, and that as you, as Christ died, you would die, and Christ was raised, you would be raised to new life through his resurrection. That's why Jesus calls us to baptize people after they become disciples of Jesus. See, baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality, what's already taken place in your life. Listen to these two texts. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're moved from one place to another, from the kingdom of darkness and death to the kingdom of light and life in Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. When you start following Jesus, when you place all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your trust in him, you are literally immersed into his death, united with him in his death. And you are raised to new life through his resurrection. So with baptism, down into the watery grave you go, raised up to walk in the newness of life. See, baptism is a public declaration of your faith in Christ. What Christ has done for you. But more than that, it's a public declaration of what Jesus has done for you. I'm identifying with Christ and everything he's done and everything he's accomplished for me. When you become a disciple of Jesus, everything changes for you. And as disciples, we're called, as we looked at last week, to love God and love others more than we love ourselves, just like Jesus has done. And to do that by his power that's at work within us. Listen, church, apart from Jesus, you are dead in your sin. Apart from Jesus, you aren't able to do anything on your own. But with Jesus, you're made alive. With Jesus, you can be and do all that God has called you to be and do. Bearing spiritual fruit. As John 15 says, that spiritual fruit proves that we are disciples of Jesus. Now, why do I say all this? Two reasons. If you are going to make disciples, you must first be a disciple. If you're going to make disciples, you must first be a disciple. So let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus or do you just know about Jesus? See, I think in the American church today, there are a whole lot of people that gather with the church week in and week out that do not actually know Christ. They could even maybe have memorized the Great Commission, but don't have a real relationship with Jesus. You just know Jesus kind of at the periphery. You've kept him at an arm's length. The analogy we've used before is that Jesus is is asking you to jump into the water with him, yet you continue just to kind of walk around the edge of the swimming pool. You, You feel like you're there, but you haven't quite jumped in yet. 
Is that you this morning? Have you repented of your sin and turned to faith in Christ? Turning away from self, turning away from sin, and placing your faith in Jesus. If you haven't, I plead with you to do that now. Do that today. So you have to be a disciple before you can make disciples. The second reason I say all this is that we need to know what it is that we're actually called to go and make. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that the call is to go and make decisions. Go and call people to pray a prayer. Go and call people to walk down an aisle. Go and call people to throw their stick in the fire at camp. You know, he didn't didn't call people to do any of those things. He says, go and make disciples, followers of Jesus. People who actually are going to start following Jesus. Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has taught. Go and make followers of Jesus, not followers of you. You don't have disciples. Only Jesus does. See, we are not called to go and teach people our own ideas of spirituality. We're not called to go and teach people our own ideas of Christian living. We're called to teach people what Jesus taught and all of it. He's the Lord. He's the teacher. We are followers. We are learners. Which means that if we're going to make disciples in the word of God has to be central to everything that we do when it comes to disciple making. Going and making disciples is about both evangelism and what we often call discipleship. Because at the center of both of those things is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. See, what Jesus is really calling us to do and what we see throughout the scriptures, what we're called to do as followers of Christ is to gospel people. To continue to bring the good news of Christ up over and over again, asking and answering two questions. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to know him? What does it mean to follow him? The gospel is good news of new life and a fundamental identity shift from death to life. It's a message of grace that we must come back to over and over and over again. A person does not become a disciple of Jesus apart from the gospel, and a disciple never moves on beyond the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation and the means of our becoming more and more like our Savior. So Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, observe doesn't mean information transfer. It doesn't mean observe like in an academic analysis, like some take some notes and observe what's going on. No, observe means do. It means obey. See, when Jesus is Lord of your life, he calls you to follow him in every aspect of your life. He is Lord and King, and he intends for his followers, his disciples, to follow, to listen, to obey. His words are not suggestions to you but commands that are for your good and your joy, for his glory in our lives and in this world. Simply put, when someone becomes a disciple of Jesus, their life cannot continue to look the same as it did before, or they're not actually disciples of Jesus. So this means that making disciples is is a call not only to a new future eternal life, but to a new life now. To a new king who says to you, now, take up your cross and follow me now. But let's not miss something extremely important and critical here. Making disciples requires movement. Making disciples requires movement. Jesus says, go. Go. Go and make disciples. Go and gospel them. And who are we to go to? All nations. 
Now, this would have been pretty mind-blowing for these 11 disciples that he says this. Because their understanding, their belief was that the kingdom of God was just for Jewish people. And so in this moment, what Jesus is saying is not just for Jewish people, it's for all people. Every people group. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But let's make sure we don't miss something in that. The call to go and make disciples of all nations isn't to glance over those people who are right around you as if they're unimportant. All nations includes all neighbors. So Jesus' call for us is to reach both our neighbors and the nations, to take the gospel locally and globally, to reach our coworker and the Congolese for Christ, to preach Jesus to the president of our homeowners association and the Hue people, to proclaim redeeming grace to our neighbor across the street and the Yemeni man and woman across the ocean. Why? Because all of those people, apart from Christ, are utterly lost. Utterly lost. Every day, millions of people plunge into a Christless eternity because they haven't heard the name of Christ. They haven't heard the good news of Jesus. See, that gets to the crux of why this matters and why I'm talking about this today in light of talking about why we exist as a church. Brother and sister, do you believe that people will actually spend an eternity in hell bearing all of the weight and wrath of their sin apart from Christ. Do you actually believe that to be true? That if someone doesn't hear that Christ came to save them, that they'll spend an eternity separated from God, an eternity. Do you believe that you're actually called to follow Jesus? That what he's called you to do right here and now isn't optional for you? See, when you love God and love others, you're compelled to obey this commission from your Savior because it's eyes off you and looking out to those around you who are in desperate need, looking to those whose greatest need is to be reconciled to God. When we understand this, then it becomes not a question of compliance, but rather a burden we gladly bear. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a faithful church, we have to be the church sent and sending, not the church settled. We have to be going. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we have to go and send locally and globally to reach those who have not yet heard or believe. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. And so now as his ambassadors under his authority, we're called to go and do the same. These 11, once scared, now emboldened disciples, took seriously what Jesus commissioned them to do. They went and they gospeled people, and the world has never been the same since. The resurrection of Jesus happened and it changed everything for these disciples, yes, but for the whole world. I mean, you realize that you're sitting here this morning. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're here this morning because someone took the gospel to you. They brought it to you. Maybe it was your mom, maybe it was your dad, but someone still spoke it to you. Maybe it was on a college campus. Maybe it was out on the street. Maybe it was a coworker. It's because these 11 listened to what Jesus said and that continued down the line of faithful followers of Jesus going and making disciples. You didn't figure this out on your own. Nobody in this room is smart enough for that. No, the gospel came to you and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God opened up your eyes and gave you faith to believe. And the same is true for the rest of the world. We 
are called to go to them. Unless someone brings the good news to them, they will not know. But listen, isn't our job to make them know Jesus? Or, or convince them to know Jesus or follow Jesus? But Jesus uses us to share the hope of the gospel so that they might believe as the Spirit works within them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' method for extending the kingdom to include people from every tribe, every language, every nation, it isn't angels. It isn't writing it in the sky. It's faithful disciples, the people of God, those whose lives have been transformed by the resurrecting power of the gospel. His plan, his method for extending his kingdom is you. Isn't that crazy? How simple that is. There's no crazy complex strategy. It's you. The only crazy thing about the Great Commission given to us in Matthew 28 is that not everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus knows that Jesus has called them to do this. Someone in our church sent me an image this week that showed some statistics. A simple survey question was asked to regular church attenders. This is the question. Have you heard of the Great Commission? Have you heard of it? 6% said they weren't sure. 15% said, yes, I, this is, I, I've heard the Great Commission and I can, I can tell you what it is. I can tell you what Jesus has called me to do. 21% said, yes, but I can't exactly recall the meaning of it. 51% of people who regularly gather with the church said they don't know what it is. 51% of people who say that they're disciples of Jesus don't know that Jesus called them to go and make disciples. Brothers and sisters, for this church, for our church, I don't want that to be the case. That there's a clarity. We know what Christ has called us to do. We know why our church exists. It's this right here. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. That's why we're here. No other reason than that. We exist because Christ saves us and now sends us. We exist to be faithful to our king and see the great commission fulfilled in us and through us. See, this is not a suggestion from Jesus, meek and mild. This is a mandate from the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Will we listen? Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist pastor from the 1800s, says this. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You either spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. So let me ask you this morning, where are you in this? Are you participating in this work or are you sitting on the sidelines? Is Jesus really Lord of your life, or is he just some fluffy figurehead of false hope for you? Now, I don't say all this this morning to you to make you feel guilty. This isn't a guilt trip into obedience. It's a call to faithfulness. A call for all of us to be faithful to what Christ has called us to. So will you obey your Lord? Will we, as a church, obey? Will we be faithful? And one of our core values as a church is that we would be a community on mission. We do this together. It isn't something that you're called to go and do just by yourself as an isolated, disconnected individual. We're called to be a family of the redeemed who takes seriously the call of our Savior. And if you truly know Christ, you have all the information and truth you need to go and make disciples. 
love the story of the blind man who's healed and the, the Pharisees are questioning him about all kinds of things. Who did this? What did he do? Well, Jesus did it. Well, no, he couldn't have really done it. And they just continue to question. They bring him in and out and in and out. And finally, he gets to the point. He goes, look, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. It's all you need to know. Jesus saved you. You want others to know him too and be saved by him. And then collectively, the church, we can help one another know what it looks like to follow Christ together. Brothers and sisters, God's plan A God's plan A for reaching the world, for making disciples, is the local church. It's us. That means that everything we do must be connected back to the central calling, the central command, going and making disciples who love God and love others more than we love ourselves. All of our giving, all of our serving, all of our preaching, all of our community building has to always be all about gospeling people, all about disciples making disciples. Sojourn, this is a joy, it's a privilege for us to be a part of God's global mission. He doesn't need us, but he invites us. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing around the world. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, you redeemed. Go, you saved. Go, you transformed. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity and teaching them to obey everything I'm commanded. The good news that Jesus ends with is that we have confidence to go. We have confidence for two reasons. First, because he says he'll go with us. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, Jesus being with us isn't a sentimental cheerleader, kind of give a hug and a pat on the back presence. It is absolutely necessary. Left to ourselves, this is an impossible mission. We have to realize we're advancing into enemy-occupied territory. We're advancing into that. The gates of hell seek to keep us out, and Jesus says they won't prevail. The church is going to bust through those gates. We're advancing into enemy-occupied territory, pushing back darkness. If Jesus doesn't go with us, then we are lost. But may we never forget, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Matthew's gospel ends where it began. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and that has been and always will be the case. So listen, knowing that Jesus is with us means that there should be no place in this world that we are afraid to go, because Jesus says he goes with us. No place we're afraid to go, whether that's a closed country or your co-worker's cubicle, whether that's the distant jungles around the other side of the world or your neighbor's house. Jesus goes with you. We can have confidence because he goes with us, and we can also have confidence because Revelation 7 tells us the amazing, shows us the amazing picture of a mission accomplished. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, the Apostle John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. No one can number. Who are these people? People from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
When the nations come to know our risen Savior, the faithfulness of disciples making disciples brings that about, and it spreads the global glory of God to the ends of the earth. Sojourn, this is why we're here. This is why we exist. This is what we must continue to be about until Jesus returns or calls us home. True disciples making disciples. So may God raise up men and women in this church, maybe even sitting here this morning to get on planes, to go to unreached people. May he raise up men and women to go to places and proclaim Jesus to those who have never heard. May God raise up men and women in this church to join together to plant churches here in the D.C. metro area to preach and proclaim Jesus in our neighborhoods. May God raise you up this week to be an ambassador for Jesus, sent by his authority to proclaim his good news of freedom and forgiveness to whoever you encounter. And may God be glorified through the disciples at Sojourn Church, making disciples of our neighbors and the nations to the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen. Every week at Sojourn, we get to take communion together. And we get to take communion together because the 11 disciples took Jesus' call seriously. They went. And they preached the good news of Christ and many lost their life for doing it. But that was a small price to pay for the Savior who laid down his life for them. Who laid down his life for you. See, it wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of something new. And so we come to the table today to eat the bread a picture of Christ's body broken for us to drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for us because Jesus died and was raised so that we might be forgiven and set free. We come together to the table because someone shared the gospel with us and God opened up our eyes and gave us faith to believe. So may you come forward this morning rejoicing in that reality and repenting of any aspect of your life where you haven't taken Jesus' call to go and make disciples seriously. Would you repent of that today? Would we repent of that today even as a church and come forward though resting in his grace, knowing that his mercies are new every morning and walking forward in faith tomorrow? And we come forward rejoicing in that. Now if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion. And the reason for that is because this is a declaration that Jesus is our only hope. And so if you don't yet know Christ, our hope for you today is that you would take Christ. That you would just stay in your seat and pray. Ask God to save you from your sin. Ask him to redeem you, to forgive you, to bring you into relationship with him. And if you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or follow Jesus, that's why we're here. We want to help you. We want to teach you all that Jesus commanded so that you might walk in faithfulness to him. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink. And what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you sent someone to us to share the gospel. Maybe it's someone in our family, maybe it's someone in school, maybe it was a random person on the street, but God, you sent someone, you purposed that someone would come and share that Christ died for our sin and rose again. So Lord, we rejoice in that this morning. Thank you, God, for your grace. You're not obligated to save anyone. So we rejoice in the salvation you've given us in Christ. But Lord, I pray that that would not stop with us. 
that we would rejoice in that salvation. It would just compel us in such a way, overwhelm us in such thankfulness and joy that we wouldn't be able to hold back the good news. That we would go and talk to our neighbors, that we would pray, God, where are you sending me? As we go into our workplaces, as we think about what you want to do with our lives, that you would send us even across the ocean to people who have not yet heard the gospel. God, would you raise up men and women in this church to go wherever you'd have us go? But God, I know this, that even if someone doesn't get on a plane, you've called us today to go and be ambassadors for you. So even as we leave here this morning, would we leave seeing ourselves as commissioned missionaries? Jesus gave a commission, a commencement. This isn't the end of something. It's the beginning of something new. Lord, allow us the privilege, the joy to be a part of seeing the great commission fulfilled. Not for our glory, not for our praise, but for your glory and your praise. We praise your holy name today and we thank you for what Christ has done for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.